We now have uh, we now have three more speakers: Halvard Fredriksson on the European Court of Justice, uh, René Schwock on the Swiss case, and Siglinda Gustol on the EU's neighbours. Yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, I'm I'm not a political scientist. I'm a lawyer. So this will be a bit boring and down-to-earth as compared to what we have heard before the break. Secondly, I'm not affiliated to ARENA, but I'm from the University of Bergen. Uh, we will just run through some... Uh, I was asked here to, to come and talk about the, uh, the case law of the European Court of Justice in cooperation without participation. And the very short answer is yes. And I will try to explain that within the time uh, limit I have been given. Uh, first, we just briefly, as I suspect that some of you are not lawyers, run through the judicial architecture of the EA agreement. Uh, as you will know, uh, we do not have a common EA court. We should have had one. It would have made things a lot easier. But we don't, thanks to the European Court of Justice, uh, who would not have any such court in 1991. So, uh, for reasons of sovereignty, there, uh, there is no compulsory ECJ jurisdiction over the EFTA states. That was the Commission's suggestion. This is easy, we already have a court, we just used the ECJ. That was impossible for the EFTA states to accept for reasons of sovereignty. So there is no compulsory ECJ jurisdiction. It is possible to refer cases to the ECJ under Articles 107 and 111, but this has never been done, and I don't think it ever will be for political reasons, but it's possible. So what do we have instead? Well, we have an independent, completely independent EFTA court for the EFTA pillar of the EEA. For reasons of sovereignty, the EFTA court has a comparatively weaker position vis-à-vis -vis the national courts of the EFTA states than does the ECJ in the EU. Uh, this is demonstrated quite clearly in this Article uh, 34 of the Surveillance and Court Agreement. There is no obligation for the Norwegian Supreme Court, for instance, to refer any cases to the EFTA court. And by the way, they don't do it either. It's 12 years since the last time they sent any case to the EFTA court. Uh, so obviously, they don't feel obliged to do so. Uh, and if they ever do, uh, the answers they receive are merely advisory. And they are, uh, as we have recently seen, not always followed. Um, as a consequence, the national courts, the highest courts, the Supreme Courts of Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein has a comparatively bigger role in the EFTA pillar than does the national courts in the EU. This is also demonstrated in Article 34 of the SCA and Article 106 of the EEA agreement. Uh, and the contracting parties has acknowledged the full independence of the courts, formally. And then, of course, uh, this two-pillar structure is carried through all the way, so only the EFTA Surveillance Authority, uh, or Iceland and Liechtenstein, not very practically, but only the EFTA Surveillance Authority may bring infringement proceedings against Norway. Not the Commission, 
not any EU member state. Of course, in a case like ISAVE, one may wonder, is really the EFTA surveillance authority completely free in their assessment or not? But formally, they are. The Commission may not sue Norway before the EFTA court. And of course, then we have the dispute settlement by diplomatic political means under Article 111. So there's no a limitation on sovereignty there either. The position of the ECJ is completely untouched by the EFTA pillar. There was originally uh, suggested a provision on a duty of, duty of the ECJ to pay due account to the judgments of the National Supreme Courts and, and uh, the EFTA court, but this was not accepted by the ECJ and it was removed. Uh, by comparison, the EFTA court is obliged to take into account the rulings of the ECJ. So there's an imbalance there. And uh, on a different note, the Lugano Convention from 2007 actually does have a provision which obliged the ECJ to take into account national uh, case law. Uh, and this is, as far as I know, particularly due to the Swiss. Because they have a Swiss uh, Supreme Court who knows quite a lot about the Lugano Convention and they insisted on this uh, provision being inserted into the Lugano Convention. So it's, it's possible, but we don't have any such provisions in the EEA agreement. And then we have Protocol 48 of the EEA agreement, which is very little known in Norway or in, in the EEA in general, but it is very important. It basically says that decisions taken by the EEA Joint Committee may not affect the case law of the ECJ. And in the words of the Commission, this provides for the reception of new rulings of the ECJ by means of measures taken by the Joint Committee. Very interesting and um, frank and open uh, assessment by the Commission back in 1992. And I've included this, this citation from Maurice Cremona, who also basically says the same thing in, uh, with some other words. So that was, that is the, that was the, uh, the outset. Uh, I guess the reason why I was asked to contribute to this book and be here today is that I've gone through the case law 20 years on. What has happened? What, is, uh, what conclusions may be drawn? How does this work in practice? And it's, it's quite straightforward. Both the EFTA court and the national courts of the EFTA states have consistently taken into account all relevant rulings of the ECJ, regardless of the fact that they are given after the date of signature of the EEA agreement. And they are not only taken into account, in effect, they are followed as binding authority, both by, uh, by the EFTA court and at least, and I should be a bit careful here, at least by the Supreme Court of Norway. It is a bit more difficult to assess Icelandic case law for linguistic reasons. Uh, and uh, I will not say so much about Liechtenstein either, but at least as far as Norway is concerned. 
the most prominent example from the EFTA court is, of course, this uh, Oreal case from 2008, where I basically said that if the ECJ decides differently after we, the EFTA court, have uh, decided on the matter, then we will change our mind afterwards. And that was what they did. So they're basically saying that any decision from the EFTA court only has provisional authority until the ECJ rules on the same matter. Uh, the Supreme Court of Norway, I will not, certainly not uh, uh, deal with all these cases, but I've just listed some of them. Very famous Finnaga case back in 2000, where the Supreme Court, a bit hidden behind the lines, but they really said in full court that we are more interested in the opinion of the ECJ than we are in the opinion of the after court. A uh, very important case from 2004, where they overruled an earlier judgment just by referring to the fact that the ECJ had decided differently. And then the Supreme Court said, well, we decided otherwise in 1998, but we have to change that because the ECJ has, in the meantime, decided otherwise. Uh, and then we have these um, CHC cases, 2010 and 2012. They concern helicopter pilots, age discrimination. And what happened there, this is not even part of the EA agreement. It is outside the EA agreement. And what happened was that the Supreme Court in 2010 realized that they were about to decide on an issue which was pending before the ECJ at the same time in a German case. And then they decided, well, what should we do? Should we proceed? and risk rendering a judgment which will be proven to be wrong afterwards, or should we simply postpone the hearing and wait for the ECJ? And they did. And as you can see from, from the references there, they waited for two years. So the case was pending before the Supreme Court for two years, waiting for a decision of a German case before the ECJ. They got a decision from the German case. Luckily, the answer of the ECJ was quite clear. And then they just implemented it. Then it was straightforward to decide the Norwegian case. Um, and of course, we have this STX case, which is a bit in, infamous. I uh, will not go into the details, but it clearly shows that the Supreme Court will do its utmost to follow the case of the ECJ, regardless of the fact that there might be decisions from the EFTA court as well. They will simply dis disregard those if they believe them to be wrong. Perhaps just as important for political scientists is the fact that the governments of the EFTA states, the Norwegian government, the Icelandic government and the Liechtenstein government as well as the EFTA surveillance authority have basically adapted to this reality. So instead of pursuing cases in national courts or before the EFTA court, they simply wait for cases, similar cases, before the ECJ to be decided. And then they just follow the outcome. And I guess from the EU perspective, this is perfectly fine. As long as Norway actually wait for the outcome of the ECJ case and then follow it, I, I see no reasons for the EU side to object. But from the Norwegian perspective, it is, of course, a bit strange. And the EFTA court are really unhappy with this because it gives them fewer cases than they would like. Uh, an example is, of course, 
Um, the cases we have now pending concerning personal watercraft, jet skis, or whatever you call them. Uh, of course, we should have had a Norwegian case on that. But then came a Swedish case. And why not just wait and see? So we waited for the Swedish case. And as far as I know, we just accepted the outcome. And now we are adjusting the Norwegian legislation accordingly. Of course, there is a debate with the EFTA Surveillance Authority and the Norwegian government. But basically, they have just outsourced the decision-making to the ECJ. Uh, and another very recent example, which is interesting to me as a lawyer at least, is the fact that we are now acknowledging judgments <coughs> of the ECJ without questioning the relevance of the reasoning behind them. And this test Ashat's case is, is a very good example. The case, it's quite well known, it concerned uh, discrimination of men and women under insurance uh, law. The fact that women live longer than men, that is a men, that's a statistical fact. And that had consequences for the premiums they had to pay. Uh, there's a directive on this, accepting this discrimination. The directive is part of the EA agreement. And Norwegian authorities has uh, made use of, of this exception. Then comes the ECJ and says this is in breach of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, Articles 21 and 23. And as you know, the, this charter is not part of the EA agreement. Still, without any discussion, Norwegian authorities have just said, well, that means this provision in the directive is invalid. We have to adjust Norwegian legislation accordingly. And now we have. So now men and women pay the same premiums in Norway in life insurance uh, contracts. Uh, and of course, the, the final proof, if one like, this dispute settlement procedure under Article 111, where one seemingly would decide uh, cases where the case law of the EFTA court and the national courts of the EFTA states differs from, from the case law of the ECJ. This provision has never been used. So the basic answer, uh, the basic conclusion concerning incorporation is yes. <laughs> Uh, what about participation? This is stating the obvious, but still, just for the sake of argument, that there are no judges or advocates general from the EFTA states in the ECJ. That's obvious. Uh, and of course, the EFTA states have absolutely no influence on the judicial appointments in the EU. Of course not. Further, there are no national experts, there are no Norwegian lawyers working within the ECJ system, nor in the cabinets of the judges or the advocates general, uh, neither in the court's big and important research department. There are simply no one there representing Norway, Iceland or Liechtenstein. Now, of course, we may uh, submit observations to the ECJ, and we do sometime, we then being the Norwegian government. Not as often as we should, uh, perhaps for, well, I'm not quite sure why, but we don't uh, submit uh, observations as often as we should. 
Actually, the Swiss do it more often than we do, uh, but at least we have the possibility. And we may also, in certain cases, intervene in direct actions, uh, but we don't do that much either. And the possibility has been severely limited by some, judge, uh, some decisions by the president of the ECJ. So the only possible participation we have is indirect participation through the EFTA court. And indeed, uh, there are some suggestions that the views of the EFTA court are taken into account by the ECJ. To what extent, we don't know. I would say probably very limited, but at least they do sometimes cite the EFTA court. They've done so on 30 occasions or the like. But it doesn't really matter in this uh, connection because the EFTA court is certainly not an advocate for the governments of the EFTA states. It's an independent court of justice. And in my opinion, having gone through all these cases, there is basically no evidence to support the claim that the EFTA court is an advocate for the legal culture of the EFTA states. I haven't found any such cases. Uh, we can argue about that, but I, I think it's at least it's very limited. And there, if there is, if someone can come up with a case and say, well, this case suggests that the EFTA court is influenced by Norwegian legal traditions, there are, there are at least no evidence to suggest that this has ever uh, persuaded the ECJ. Uh, so conclusion concerning participation, very limited. Does it matter? As a matter of principle, in my view, yes. <coughs> because the judicial evolution of the internal market takes place without any notice of the legal culture of the EFTA states. Uh, does it matter as a matter of fact? Perhaps. Very hard to assess. But we have this is the EFTA court more Catholic than the Pope discussion going on? Uh, and we have the fact that the national courts use this as an excuse to avoid the EFTA court. <coughs> of course, the Supreme Court would never admit that, but that's what they are doing in fact. And I think it's fair to say that there may be cases where the legal traditions of the EFTA states could have contributed to a positive evolution of EU law. And if I should try to give you one example, it may be cases concerning access to documents. Because there there are clearly a fight going on within the ECJ between some of the Nordic states, Sweden in particular, intervening all the time trying to get the ECJ to move in towards more openness. And you have southern European states, well, not that enthusiastic about access to documents. Uh, that is a case where it may have mattered if there were Norwegian and Icelandic participation in the ECJ. Thank you for inviting uh, an outsider's outsider. <laughs> uh, listening uh, to you uh, had the, the impression that uh, you are complaining a lot <laughs> about... Uh, the situation of being a kind of satellite of the European Union. Switzerland is more a rebel, 
country, uh, but the situation today is a real mess, and uh, maybe better to be a good child than a rebel. I will explain you this in a moment. So those are the three questions you, you asked me to answer. Uh, I didn't write uh, this slide, uh, and I will try to answer those three questions. So uh, maybe for record, uh, I should read them. Uh, Switzerland affili is affiliated with the EU through bilateral agreements. What lessons will what can we learn from the Swiss perspective? What are the democratic implications on of this kind of affiliation? So Switzerland uh, EU relations are in a very bad shape, in a very bad situation. You may not be aware of this. Uh, most people in the Commission are not aware of this. Most journalists are not aware of this. But uh, since uh, this uh, referendum uh, in February of this year, uh, there's a total stalemate in the relationship. Why? Because in the referendum, the Swiss population accepted uh, quotas on any kind of immigrants, any kind of people coming into Switzerland. So now this referendum is part of the Swiss constitution and we have three years to apply this uh, uh, part of the Swiss constitution. So first to put quotas on any immigrants or even immigrants from the EU countries and from Norway. <laughs> Uh, because there's another agreement uh, with Norway and Iceland uh, separate, but based on the EU. And secondly, uh, there, there, sh there could be discrimination in favor of Swiss nationals against non-Swiss nationals, uh, for instance, for, for a job. So this is a total contradiction to free movement of persons. So how to, to, to make a, a compromise with uh, such a situation? So it's not compatible with bilateral agreements on the free movement of people. This is clear, and the Swiss government repeated this, and the, the, the commission repeated this. Uh, so everybody agrees that it's not compatible. So how to find a solution? Uh, and at the same time, the, another process started one, two years ago. The EU is pushing Switzerland towards something more similar to the EA, what I call the EA benchmark. So the EU wants Switzerland to be a little bit like Norway, <laughs> with a, a little bit uh, a kind of EA mechanism, but on a, on a bilateral basis. So the Commission or the EU External Action Service, I will say the Commission, but it's, it's the same. Uh, the Commission is uh, trying to have a bilateral EA with Switzerland. Okay. So this is a very strange situation. So on the one hand, we are, there are forces going into the direction of uh, bilateral agreements minus, and at the same time, bilateral agreements plus. And I frankly don't know where we go. <laughs> uh, so uh, negotiations have recently started between the EU and Switzerland on bilateral agreements plus. Uh, and uh, already we have a non-paper on what could be the outcome of this agreement. It is called the O'Sullivan-Rossier non-paper. O'Sullivan is the number two in the EU External Action Service. 
uh, and Rossi is the Swiss Secretary of State. So they already drafted a non-published paper, so we more or less know where uh, they are going to. So just rapidly, the substance of the today Switzerland-EU bilateral agreements. So there are roughly 120 bilateral agreements. Um, there's a long list of uh, agreements, uh, but since 2005, no new substantial agreement has been uh, uh, ratified between Switzerland and the EU. So there's a kind of stalemate in the situation between Switzerland and the EU. Uh, very rapidly, uh, what are the main differences between the EA and the Switzerland-EU situation? So the Swiss, they don't have uh, access to financial services of uh, the EU internal market. They don't have uh, taken all the aspect of CASIS of Dijon mechanism. Uh, they don't uh, also take the EU rules of competition. They also have, uh, the Swiss have less horizontal and flanking uh, policies. Uh, they contribute a little bit to financial solidarity, but much less than Norway per, per head. It is a Swiss decision. It's, it, was, it is a Swiss choice. The Swiss could have uh, chosen in the past to uh, get all those elements, but uh, the Swiss uh, decided a more pick and choose policy uh, and so didn't want to take all the substantial aspects of the EA. Uh, there are other examples I could give you, but uh, I give you here the, the more important one. Here you have a long list of the, uh, of, of the bilateral agreements. Uh, there's no time to refresh your memory about all of them, but uh, if you keep records of this presentation so people can. Uh, refresh their memory by reading all those two uh, rounds of bilateral agreements. Uh, institutional aspects are very different. In the Swiss case, it's very, very simple as, as far as today compared to what has been said uh, about uh, the EA mechanism. So there's no general framework agreement. There's no link between the different agreements except a guarantee close in the first round of bilateral agreements. There are no common institutions. Uh, so there's no EFTA surveillance authorities, there's no surveillance authority, uh, there's no court of justice, um, and uh, so there are only uh, small common institutions and joint uh, bodies. The third difference is the, this issue of non-automatic adoption of evolution of EU acquis. So in the EU uh, agreement, there is almost automatic uh, adoption of evolution of EU acquis, not at all in today's uh, bilateral agreements between Switzerland and the EU, with, the, with a few exceptions. Therefore, there are some asterisks. Schengen is an exception to the rule, and uh, 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 transportation is also an exception. Uh, but otherwise, uh, it's more static the mechanism uh, than in the Norwegian case. There is no, nothing about interpretation of uh, the Court of Just Justice, uh, uh, EU Court of Justice uh, um, judgments. There is no mechanism of uh, dispute settling, and there is no also participation in uh, decision shaping. So 
EU EFTA states, they have participation in uh, uh, decision, EU decision shaping, but not Switzerland, except again in, uh, in the Schengen mechanism. So uh, you see it's very, very, very light compared to, to the, the EA. But the EU doesn't like it. So for many years, in the la since 2005, uh, the EU was pushing for something more substantial, something closer to the EU benchmark. So in the f uh, it's too small, I regret, but here you have a, uh, a slide with uh, all those aspects, a, a summary of what I've said about the substantial aspect, and also, uh, I cannot move, but here uh, you have the institutional aspects which are more interesting. Uh, so here you have the EA, the first column is about the EA pillar, second col uh, column is about the situation today, and third uh, column is about what could change uh, if uh, the, the negotiations are successful on what we call the institutional uh, uh, links between Switzerland and the EU. And this is uh, uh, the O'Sullivan Rossier non-paper I've mentioned earlier. So here you'll find what could change, but uh, I don't know if it will be accepted. Now they started negotiations. There's the Swiss mandate on the negotiations, the, the EU mandate of negotiation, and the possible compromise could be this. It's, it's strange because we know the compromise before. The negotiations, but uh, okay, this is uh, uh, quite strange. But the Swiss, don't, they don't want, uh, they want something more uh, sovereignist than this, and the EU wants something less sovereignist than this compromise. So, for instance, uh, in the first, uh, about decision shaping, so yes, Switzerland could join the EU decision shaping if, uh, if it works. Um, second, uh, <laughs> difficult to read. Sorry, I, uh, uh, taking uh, over uh, evolution of EU acquis. Uh, <laughs> I put the 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 the, cent the 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 word dynamic. They are using the expression dynamic. So it's not uh, static as today. It's not automatic. Something in between. Let's call it dynamic. But <laughs> we don't know exactly what it means. So quasi-automatic. So you see a compromise. So everything is about, uh, about uh, trying to find uh, compromises uh, on uh, all issues. Okay, I have two minutes left. So uh, what are the scenarios? Um, everything is now possible. Uh, here I've put eight scenarios. I, I wrote this uh, on uh, last Thursday, but last Friday the Swiss minister in charge of this mm -hmm. said uh, that they made 50 scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm modest. <laughs> uh, so uh, here you have. So you could have a, a BA plus 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 or some Swiss legal scholars. They want this. Uh, so Switzerland keeping a bilateral relations, but using. Uh, the EFTA EA instruments, so not uh, so like the the EFTA Court of Justice and the uh, EFTA Sovereign's Authority, uh, BA plus plus plus. This is the position of uh, of the EU in the mandate of negotiation. Uh, BA plus plus. This is the uh, compromise uh, non-paper Rossier uh, or Sullivan non-paper BA plus. This is just uh, the Swiss position, a little bit more than today, but not too much. Okay. 
Finally, maybe we will, after everything, we'll have uh, the same situation of today. This is BA. Uh, and also, we can have a BA minus, or BA minus minus, or BA minus minus minus. Uh, <laughs> why? Because uh, maybe the, the EU will refuse. Uh, that Switzerland uh, put uh, some quotas, and maybe we'll never find a compromise, and so Switzerland, uh, the EU uh, will uh, condemn Switzerland, will take uh, measures of reprisals uh, against Switzerland. Hard measures or not hard measures, maybe they, will, will they denounce all the agreements except maybe the 1972 agreement or, or part of them? We absolutely don't know. So it's a total mess. Uh, so conclusions, Switzerland-EU relations are, <laughs> in this situation, no prediction is possible. Of course, Switzerland cannot be a model in this situation. Um, of course, uh, BA of today, but, uh, bilateral agreements of today, uh, they keep more formal sovereignty than uh, the Norwegian case. I agree with this. But uh, is it the issue of sovereignty which is uh, discussed today or the issue of democracy? Is it the same thing? Sometimes I have the impression that uh, you confuse both of them. Maybe this is a, a theme for, for discussion. Uh, if Switzerland had to accept all the pressures of the EU, so the models BA++ or++++++, so uh, of course Switzerland would be in a situation much closer to uh, your situation, uh, the one you, you described. Um, of course, Switzerland could give the impression to be more democratic than Norway, but it has uh, to do with direct democracy, not with the situation of Switzerland. So don't confuse the independent variable and the dependent variable. If Switzerland is in such situation, it is not because Switzerland has another model of uh, uh, incorporation in the EU. It is because Switzerland has direct democracy. Uh, in other words, that at any time any people can put what they what they want in the constitution, even if it's in contradiction with international agreements uh, uh, signed ratified by uh, Switzerland. Uh, if Swiss, in other words, if Switzerland had joined the EA, Switzerland could be in the same situation because uh, uh, there would be people putting in the Swiss constitution elements in contradiction with the EA agreement. Uh, so, uh, again, don't confuse uh, the independent and the dependent uh, viable. Thank you for your interest. Thank you very much. Now, of course, we're almost, now we're almost pleased that Switzerland is not in the EA, but <laughs> I shouldn't say that as a Liechtensteiner, we would have been happy, you would have spared us some problems. Um, I have the pleasure now to sort of try to wrap it up a little bit, and I will open the debate or the perspective even further to the neighbors of the European Union. What lessons can we actually draw from these different uh, models? I'm very happy that Rene talked about the Swiss model. We have heard about the Norway and the EA a lot. Um, and I would like to bring it, bring it all a little bit together. Over the past two decades, as you know, the neighbors uh, of the European Union have increasingly developed a stake in the internal market. I will focus on the internal market and not on the CFSP, as Helene has explained. That's a voluntary addition, so to speak, uh, for Norway. Uh, we have talked about the case of Switzerland, the bilaterals. I might say a few words about the customs union EU-Turkey, which also is a case of the other small-sized countries, San Marino, Monaco, Andorra. At least San Marino and Andorra have a bilateral customs union agreement with the EU. 
since the early 90s, and then the European neighborhood policy. And what is interesting here when it comes again to the crucial question of institutions and participation or non-participation is that when in 1989 the Commission President at the time, Jacques Delors, uh, proposed this, he talked about, uh, with regard to the then still seven EFTA countries, to look for a new, more structured partnership with common decision-making and administrative institutions. So that was the goal, and it led to the EEA. Whereas, for example, with regard to the European neighborhood policy, which has now been going on for about 10 years with regard to the countries in the East and the Southern Mediterranean, um, the Commission President at that time, uh, Romano Prodi, took a very different perspective. So you seems to be learning. Uh, he suggested that uh, the neighbors should have a prospect of a stake in the EU's internal market based on legislative and regulatory approximation, but that this framework for the ENP, the European Neighborhood Policy, should, I quote, uh, ultimately share everything but institutions. So leave the institutions out, focus on the substance. So this is quite different. Um, the EEA still serves as a sort of a benchmark model uh, for many of the other neighboring countries. It's sort of a blueprint, and the European Union often refers to it. So it's, from the EU's point of view, sort of the best you can get. So you can only get worse after that, I suppose. Um, now, we're talking about neighbors because they all are interested in deep economic integration with the European Union. They want to have a stake in the internal market, but that is very different from what we would call shallow integration, so you know, abolishing some restrictions at the border, like tariffs or quotas. We're talking about deep economic integration or behind-the-border integration, which is, makes quite a difference. So that's why also the title was about expanding the economic community of the EU. And this is actually a term that was never really defined. <laughs> But uh, the EU, for example, uses it with regard to the ENP, the, the European Neighbourhood uh, Community, without really knowing what it is all about. Now, if we try to classify these different <coughs> models, we could um, use criteria such as the scope, first of all. So the territorial scope, are we talking about a bilateral or multilateral model? Second, the sectoral scope, is it a narrow or a broad model in terms of what sectors of the internal market are being covered? And then, on the other hand, the vertical here on the slide, we could look at the degree of institutionalization. Are we talking about approximation or adoption of the acquis in those areas that are covered by the agreement? And if so, does it foresee anything like a static, dynamic, partly dynamic uh, adoption of the acquis? And in, especially in the case of a dynamic adoption, we also have to look, I think that came out very clear in Harvard's presentation, about the application and interpretation of the acquis. Is it a one-pillar model, is it a two-pillar model, or what kind of model do we have? I'm not going to repeat the EEA, because we heard a lot about it. It's a two-pillar model, multilateral, broad, dynamic. Then we also heard about the Swiss case, which is a currently a sectoral model, bilateral, mainly static. The René mentioned the exceptions. And then let me say maybe a few words about the lesser-known cases, which are the customs union, uh, for example, and the ENP. Turkey has, in 1969, entered the customs union before it half the other two small countries I mentioned. And Tur the Commission is normally informally consulting Turkey, uh, Turkish exports on a key that is relevant to them. 
you know, free movement of industrial goods, uh, processed agricultural products, and so on, competition rules to some extent, intellectual property rights protection, and so on. Um, so they actually also take over or align themselves to a lot of the key. They have done so because they thought this is just a step towards EU membership. And now it also becomes an increasing problem because membership seems to be further away than it used to be a couple of years ago. And in Turkey, the relevant ECJ law should also be taken into account as far as common positions are, for, for example, concerned. Uh, conflicts are solved in the Association Council. It's an association agreement, but they could be submitted to the ECJ. There's no compulsory uh, mechanism in this regard or to any other court as well. Now regarding the European neighborhood policy, we currently have some kind of a, what I call a hub and spoke model, static, narrow, bilateral. So there are bilateral association agreements or partnership and cooperation agreements with those countries in the neighborhood of the EU. Um, this is also changing, the new negotiations actually being negotiated, so this will also then move into a different direction as we will see in a minute. But currently, this is what we have. Uh, a footnote could be the energy community, just to show that there are also multilateral, um, rather sectoral communities possible. The energy uh, community, of which Norway, I think, is an observer uh, country, uh, is a sectoral multilateralism since 2006, and it sort of extends the internal market for electricity and gas to southeastern Europe, so the Western Balkans, Moldova, Ukraine, and then there's some observers like Norway, Armenia, or also Turkey, and Georgia is in the process of joining as well. Uh, so these are also possibilities. Just a footnote also on Andorra San Marino, I call it the absorption model, because it has even less participatory rights than Turkey or Switzerland or anybody else. So there it's really much, really uh, copy-paste. Um, for example, in their monetary agreements, they have concluded to be able to use the euro on their territory. They had to take over all the rele uh, relevant key, money laundering, financial services, and so on. Um, exclusive competencies with the ECJ, just to give you an example. But that's not the focus, just to show that there are different models available as well. Now, what I would like to do is to show you another table which talks about potential future scenarios. I don't have 50. <laughs> Uh, it's just to show you that there's a certain trend that you can observe from the EU's perspective trying to get the countries, as Rene also said, towards a certain model to make it broader and more dynamic. So what is currently under discussion or in the last three, four days looks pretty much like this. As I already mentioned for Turkey, customs unit 2.0 maybe. So it could include more areas of the internal market, like trading services or agriculture, which are now currently excluded. <coughs> it could foresee a Turkey clause, because the Turkey has a big problem that whenever the EU concludes, for example, a free trade agreement with South Korea or the United States or whoever, uh, since Turkey is in the customs union, their market is open at the same time, but they do not have access in these third countries. It's a, big, it's a huge problem, unless they themselves negotiate a parallel FTA with South Korea, the US, and others. And the US has been very active recently, concluding a lot of FTAs, as you might know. So there are, there are some things under discussion there, uh, with question marks. This, uh, if I talk about Andorra San Marino Monaco, they have been asking for more. They have been, for example, interested in joining the EEA as an option, but the EFTA countries were not delighted about that as you probably know, and what the, e the Commission has 
at the end of last year suggested is to give them a multilateral framework association agreement. So this is also with a question mark. So put them all in one basket, even though they're very different and in different corners of Europe, uh, but have them in one uh, association and with a one pillar model, meaning the Commission and the Court of Justice of the EU will be in charge of the agreements and not the national institutions. <coughs> Still, nothing is decided. Uh, I don't have to talk about the Swiss case because we just heard about it, that it's also moving if the negotiations go along this non-paper towards more dynamism, uh, potential institutional umbrella for the 120 uh, agreements that are in place. So that could also be an option. And the Swiss have accepted that for the first time, I think the principle of homogeneity as being important, that the basis will be the acquis communautaire uh, for relevant law, and that the ECJ might also play a role, whatever that role might be in the end. For the ENP, there's also a movement in, uh, to go more broader and more dynamic through the so-called Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreement, DCFTAs, which have at least become known through the crisis in Ukraine, when the Ukrainians first refused and now are trying to actually sign on, on to such an agreement. Um, they are not just approximating their legislation in relevant parts uh, to the internal market key, but are also supposed to selectively take it over. And then, of course, in the longer run, you will have the same question. How does this work institutionally um, in this neighborhood economic community that nobody knows for the time being what it actually looks like. There's one non-paper of the commission on that neighborhood economic community as well that came out a few years ago. But, uh, so what I want to say is that the problem is always the same. No matter which kind of neighbors you're actually looking at, there's always an institutional question. You can't have the cake and eat it. It comes basically to that. Either you're a member or you're not a member. If you're not a member, you have to deal with certain uh, shortcomings. And there has been the EEA review uh, that led to a huge report in Norway, but also some reports in other countries and in the EU institutions looking into the future of the EEA as well. So there could also be an EEA two-pillar model 2.0 if there would ever be negotiations, but I think it doesn't necessarily look like that. But the Commission, for instance, suggested adding more members, as I said, not popular with the other side, or adding more areas more sectors uh, into the EEA as well, or simplifying the decision-making procedures. So there are many proposals that have been uh, put forward as well. I don't think they have led to anything yet. What I would like to do uh, to focus on a few lessons, perhaps, or potential lessons that can be drawn from this. Well, first of all, the neighbors' deep economic integration with the EU varies at the moment quite a lot, from narrow bilateral static to broad, dynamic, multilateral models. Um, the existing models have, however, reached their limits, not just with Switzerland, but as I said before, also the EEA has been under review, and there have been questions where even the microstates have been questioning what, where their future will be in Europe, but also Turkey. So this is not just a Norwegian paradox, but it's a paradox well beyond that. Um, and what the EU has been doing... Um, is to ask for a specific uh, shift in the relationships, as, as, a, as came out maybe when comparing the two tables. So they have reached their minutes, limits because of a growing sectoral scope, but also because of the lack of efficient arrangements for entering the legal certainty and also the market homogeneity that this participation in, in the internal market actually requires. 
Um, now, as I just said, the EU increasingly attempts to conclude agreements with a dynamic adaptation to the acquis. So the acquis is the negotiation base, is now also for the Swiss. It's uniform interpretation and it's independent surveillance and judicial enforcement. And then, of course, there comes the question what kind of model, pillar model, or whatever you want to call it, uh, should be used. Um, number three, this shift, uh, therefore, asks this question. And what is interesting, when I think Albert said it when talking about the EEA, um, during the negotiations, there was an idea of having real joint institutions, such as an EEA Court of Justice, uh, which failed, because the ECJ uh, opposed it in its opinion. Uh, so it became clear in the EU negotiations that this was not really an option. So you could not create real joint uh, institutions with the EU. They tried, they failed. Hence, the, EU has, the EEA has two pillars as a result. But then the Swiss case... <laughs> Um, well, it's also interesting because in this non-paper, one of the options was, or no, before the non-paper, Rene, um, the Swiss Federal Council, so the government actually proposed to have a sort of two-pillar solution, the EU on the one side and the Swiss on the other. So the Swiss would surveillance them, do their own surveillance independently, I don't know how that would work, but um, so they thought, okay, we just have to have Swiss institutions and EU institutions. And the, and the Commission said clearly, no, there's no way we're going to accept that. Because it's not independent, it's not multilateral, so it's not going to work. So that basically leaves the EA model again with the two pillars, multilateral, not national pillars, or the absorption model, if I may call it that, which would be the model that the microstates are facing. Only an EU pillar and no national input into that. Um, I'm getting to, to the end. Now, we can sort of observe a dilemma on both sides, especially the closer model is based on the internal market key. Because on the one side, uh, it ensures market homogeneity. So uh, there's no fragmentation, be it legal or political. Yet on the other side, uh, especially for the third parties, the third countries participating, it also leads to a participatory deficit with some sovereignty implications, if you like. And of course, this inherent dilemma is bigger, the broader the scope of integration and the higher the degree of institutionalization. So this shift will lead to more problems, not less, unless you opt out. Um, so I think one of the lessons is that to be acceptable to both sides, any deep economic integration with the European Union should require a certain degree of collective decision shaping, if not making, uh, in order to avoid uh, these problems. And it's very interesting, for example, if you look at the European neighborhood policy in this regard, the EU has recently, after the Arab Spring, suggested a more for more principle. So, you know, the more the countries would reform and adapt to EU rules, the more they could get rewards in terms of participation in the internal market, more agreements, and so on. So more for more, but that means you give, you know, it leaves, leaves, uh, leads to higher differentiation, while at the same time, they also aspire to have an economic community with the group, uh, with a common market and joint decision-making. So it's completely contradictory in, in my view. So it's always the same attention. It was just to illustrate. Now, finally... 
As I said before, the EAA often serves, serves as a point of reference. For some, it is a source of inspiration, like for the ENP. For some, it, is, it was a source of aspiration, like for uh, Andorra and San Marino actually wanted to join. Um, but we should not forget that even this blueprint or this best currently available option suffers from growing shortcomings uh, after 20 years of having the EEA. <coughs> there are more and more controversies about the actual scope or depth of the EEA agreement, in particular when it comes to the question what is actually EEA relevant, what should go into uh, taking over in Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein and what should stay outside. Um, and increasingly, this internal market legislation is also blurred, so it's not entirely clear whether it's EEA relevant or not. You can discuss it and you can have disputes over that question. Also because the EU increasingly adopts packages, so then you have to take over the package and you cannot uh, pick and choose. So you might, there's also a creeping uh, enlargement, if you like, when it comes uh, to the acquis that goes into the EEA that should maybe not even be there in the first place. Then there are also new forms of government in the EU which are not really compatible with the EAA system, like agencies, for example. There's a problem what to do with agencies or um, other things. Or when the Commission has competence to assess the compliance of the member states, does it also assess the who's assessing the compliance of the EAFTA states and so on. So as a result, the incorporation of new legal acts, I think there are roughly 300 every year, into the EAA agreement, and therefore into the national legislation of the EFTA countries participating requires an increasing number of adaptation, technical legal adaptation to the acquis to somehow make it uh, compatible with the national uh, legislation, which leads to delays in the implementation, which again risks the homogeneity of the internal market if, the, if there are gaps uh, between. And as was already said uh, by Sean also that EFTA countries are not represented in certain bodies, Council of Ministers, European Parliament. And European Parliament, of course, has increased its powers with the Lisbon Treaty, by the way. So there's an increasing gap or participatory deficit as well. To end on a negative note. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So let's take one round of questions. We take about five questions as one round. Yes, please. Can you introduce yourselves, please? Yeah, okay. My name is Kirsta. I work at um, EU First Consultancy called the Brussels Office. Um, I have a question to Eric. Uh, Eric, you talked about uh, democratic deficits quite extensively. Um, would you say that the whole um, discussion and all the problems uh, relating to the to the agencies could that stimulate more critical debates on the national level? And do you see that those kind of discussions could change a little bit the way we think about sovereignty and representation? I'm another person from the Brussels office. <laughs> so first of all, uh, thank you so much for the, the excellent um, show that we have been witnessing. It's uh, indeed fantastic for us um, uh, EU nerds down here in Brussels uh, to see that you are being so active in Norway because uh, that's obviously where these messages need to be directed. So I have a question to Eriksen as well, but maybe also to the others because <clears throat> a lot of us who have been working with the EEA and this democratic deficit that you are very good at articulating for many years, we're starting to think that, hmm, 
might there be a possibility to think in new terms? Let me take just one example. You mentioned um, this, this, uh, this thing that we always use when we describe the EEA. It's a dynamic agreement. Well, it's the dynamic force maybe in a very pure legal sense. But is there a way that we could start talking about some, portraying it in another way? It's just one example to see, you know, encourage your work, it's great what you do, uh, but uh, maybe we could start thinking in new terms of how to articulate some of the difficulties that we are trying to, struggling so hard to convey to the, uh, to the broader audience. But thank you again for a very good time. Sonia Pierafita from the Center for European Policy Studies here in Brussels. Uh, my question is, uh, what, in view of all that has been said, what would you advise to the British? <laughs> and then how the British debate indeed can change all this landscape in terms of how it can affect the relationship of the European Union with the EEA and uh, Switzerland. I have a question to the Swiss representative. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, some people in Norway um, recommend Norway to leave the EEA system and uh, adopt the Swiss system. Would you recommend Norway to do that? My name is Ossa Aydal of the Norwegian Association of Local and Regional Authorities. Uh, and I have a question to uh, also thank you very, very much for a very interesting, lots of very interesting um, uh, points and a very interesting opinion. Um, but a question to Esten Ulsu. Uh, you said that um, um, the EEA has given Norwegians uh, larger economic rights but less uh, political rights. If you were to balance these off somehow, uh, could one argue that uh, their economic rights even uh, are or received over the years are so great that they somehow can counterbalance the lack of the political ones? Or are you able to somehow compare? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, may I suggest, well, Eric's going to st start <coughs> off. Uh, the three people who have been asked specific questions, yeah. you go first and then we'll open the debate to everyone. Uh, thank you very much for the thing on the agencies because it was not mentioned in, in our presentation that we in fact have a chapter on the, on the agencies. So, so this is very important. But, uh, and of course there is a kind of uh, surrendering or relinquishing of serenity when Norway is a member of this of these uh, agencies. And uh, uh, I don't know if that will stimulate a kind of debate, but what we at the, the research has in a way uh, brought forward is that we have a kind of two-hatted system here in, in the sense that uh, Norwegian bureaucrats, they, they are not only <laughs> Norwegian bureaucrats, but they are halfway also residents uh, 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 bureaucrats. So they, anyway, so they have in a way two has, and we have, there is a lot of work you know, from, from Marina on this uh, administrative integration, how, how, how this has, has, uh, has, um, has gone forward. But um, uh, the point, the problem is, is this we stimulate the debate. Bureaucracy is bureaucracy. So I don't know, it is not so, um, so sexy. For, for how, how would people uh, uh, 
take on all these things and to do the similar problems. So I'm not so sure that there is a, 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 any link there. The thing, the second thing about um, a new, uh, new concept and uh, and um, and our road here, yeah, of course there is uh, there is uh, it's very important to come up with new new concept to describe this, this situation uh, uh, in a way politically politically correctly, so so that then people can act upon it. So so I I think this. You should be aware of this uh, European. What is it, the Commission language and, and the uh, and, and uh, the, the kind of like slogans that take out in a way the the, the content, the normative content that are, are in it. So I very much welcome a kind of of, uh, of a critical research and critical concept and 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 uh, uh, what is it? Uh, is something uh, that could replace it, dynamic, dynamic. It, uh, what is dynamics or with dynamic agreement, but on the other hand, it is dynamic. It is expanding all the time. So, so um, that, yeah. But um, I should, but I should also mention that there is a when I have the when I have the floor, that there is a kind of division of labor here between uh, organizations belonging to the to the civil society, social movements, and 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 uh, and these kind of things. We have today a meeting here. It, it, philanthropy hosts, and that is uh, a, a decision made uh, uh, made uh, very consciously because we are in a way debating democracy here. Democracy should be not be in the power houses, in the houses of, of where the power is. So we moved away from the Norwegian House and also from the Commission area to be here, to be to be to could be speaking speaking freely without having a kind of nod to the to the to to the political power. And, but I say this because it is also important that we are, there is also, we cannot, all, not, we cannot either be also a part of, in a way, the civil society in the sense that we are a, a movement. We are, in a way, doing things that we can, we can, uh, we can uh, stand for in, in a scientific way. What we say should be empirically correct and, or, and, and the judgment we make should be in line with, with, uh, with, uh, with, with basic standards, uh, for me, basic standards has to do with democracy and basic uh, basic rights and this kind of thing. So we make normative assessments, but we have them from a certain point of view that we try to defend and say this is the only point of view that we can make this kind of assessment from. So this is also to say that sometimes we will be we will be not be with the social movements. <laughs> sometimes we are we are with them, but sometimes we must also we can also be disagree with them. We are completely independent and must be must, must be independent in order to do our 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 work. But um, uh, uh, we should do critical research, we should be problem driven and we should do serious research on what is going on and in that regard we also need better concepts and to dig dig deeper. So so uh, we uh, we will continue working on this. So next question was on the British debate, so maybe maybe it was best for Chris to answer that one, he's, uh, he's British, yes, uh, as far as I know, so this is the point for, <laughs> for a serious country, for a country that takes it. it I, 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 I used to be British, I've now given it up. Um, <laughs> for what? As a lost cause. <laughs> um, I, I think Martin Wolf uh, in the Financial Times gave a very good answer. Two weeks ago, he wrote a, a, an article entitled It's In or Out. There are no intermediate solutions that really work, which I think is what Siglinda tells us, that the intermediate solutions are not very effective. Um, René? Uh, I, I want to, to answer 
two questions. First, first one uh, about uh, advice. This word. Advice to the British. I don't want to patronize the British, which is what they should do. Uh, but actually, I did it uh, because I, I was uh, in the hearings of the the committee uh, of the EU uh, of the, the UK Parliament about the the future of the relationship with the EU. Um, and uh, my answer, and you, you can find it on the internet, it has been published, um, is that uh, from a British point of view, if, of course, uh, the UK left uh, the EU, uh, it would be better, uh, the Swiss uh, model, than uh, the EU model, because uh, you keep more independence, more sovereignty, you can choose, etc. So for, from a British sovereignist point of view, which is not my point of view, but uh, uh, in this assumption, of course, uh, a Swiss way would be better. And uh, I add that uh, the EA, uh, the UK joining the EA would be a catastrophe for the EA and uh, for Norway. Because, uh, yeah, because the, this collective opting out, uh, uh, having a giant in this uh, fragile uh, mechanism, so you would lose uh, all your margin of maneuver. Uh, uh, it would be a mess for, for Norway to, to have such a giant, uh, uh, a sovereignist giant by this assumption in, in the EA, and also for the EU it would be a mess. Uh, and now the second question is about uh, should it Norway uh, uh, follow the Swiss uh, uh, way? So all my presentation was about uh, showing you that uh, it's a real mess. Uh, if you want uh, <laughs> to be in a mess, uh, okay, you are <laughs> welcome. Uh, but maybe if you, I would say paradoxically, uh, if you be, if you, maybe if you behave not like the Swiss, uh, in the Swiss uh, model, maybe uh, it would work. Uh, that's uh, my uh, uh, advice. And second point, uh, be aware that uh, if you get more sovereignty and, what you say, more democracy, we observed in the last uh, years that uh, who makes profit of this? The far-right parties, the people who don't want more immigration. The, so you can be sure that uh, if you've got more margin of maneuver, uh, more sovereignty, the first political parties who will make profit of this are the far-right parties, not uh, the leftist parties. Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. Um, I think uh, it's an interesting question because I think one of the conclusions from the EA review was that you know it works. The EA works in the sense because it's, because it's a kind of a trade-off, and it works in economic terms. So therefore, we can we can accept the democratic deficit. Um, and you could you could ask whether that sort of would work for citizens as well. Um, so in one sense, yes. Uh, and you could also argue that this is more of a general trend with depoliticization. I mean, uh, uh, there is less uh, voter turnout in most European countries and so on. Um, so maybe this is not only uh, a Norwegian um, uh, development, but still, I would say, based on my, my chapter and what I prepared, this is more of a normative argument. I mean, democracy is so important that it's, it's difficult to accept that kind of trade-off. Uh, also given the fact that um, you know, EU legislation is so prevailing now uh, in Norwegian society uh, you know, that we gain free movement, that we could also gain from a bilateral agreement, like the, like the Swiss one. Um, 
that these things are, are in place is not good enough to kind of accept the political and democratic uh, deficit. Uh, so from a pragmatic point of view, you can argue, yes, this works. From a, a normative, democratic point of view, I think, you, you have to argue it doesn't work. May I ask, may I ask a question, even though I'm on the panel? Because I have, some, I, I have a question for the political scientists, and I, I guess to, to Jonerik Fossum, perhaps, in particular, but, but all of them. Because, of course, it's easy to agree with all this criticism, but it seems to be based on the fact that we could become members if we would like to. So this normative criticism, what if we were Liechtenstein? Liechtenstein may never become full members of the European Union because no one will give them veto rights in the EU Council. You can't do that with a principality of 30,000 people. So how would all the criticism to, to the Democrat, how would it be if we were Liechtenstein? Would the, would the answer of the political scientists be that Liechtenstein ought to be members of Switzerland to become working rights? I'm, I'm just wondering, because all, all your criticism is, is as a matter of principle and normative, and I agree, but it's all based on the fact that we could become members. What about San Marino and Andorra? They will never be allowed to become members. They will never have any voting rights. So for them, it's either to accept it or, 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 or completely out. I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm just a boy. Siglinda. It's so amazing since I am from Liechtenstein. <laughs> 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 I mean, in Liechtenstein, the Negotiate, but since there are now certain models there, 
they will be used as a benchmark uh, by the EU. Thanks. Uh, um, you're not just a lawyer. Um, and, and we are also talking about democratic constitutionalism. Uh, that has, of course, a direct direct. I have two, two sides to the answer. One is, um, when you study democracy, you are under obligation to uh, try to provide uh, the clearest possible assessment in terms of the democratic requirements that you put. Uh, so that's, that's a normative assessment, and, and fair enough, that's what you do. But the answer is not necessarily self-evident. Because one of the things we're, we're touching on is the relationship between democracy and sovereignty. So the, very much of the, of the rub is, is, um, is whether uh, the development of the European Union represents a, an, a, actually a, an achievement in terms of doing two things. On the one hand, potentially developing a system um, of governing in Europe that is democratic on the basis of our standard understanding of democracy based on the democratic people. So that's one possibility. The other one is whether it, it could succeed in democratizing or at least taming relations between states, which is sort of the other idea in, in Europe. So there are two contending democratic um, um, contests going on in, in Europe that they are trying to bridge. That's on the, on the EU side. With the crisis, what we have seen is, is a decline in, in democratic arrangements in the EU. So the answer is less self-evident now than it was earlier. Because the EU has become less attractive in democratic as it stands now. On Norway's side, the, the problem it faces is that it is pinning its hopes on the, the classical understanding of sovereignty. That is, uh, that you have a sovereign people that determines itself. The, the problem for Norway is that when you are in, in a world of states that are becoming more and more interdependent and societies that are becoming more and more interwoven. How can you control those circumstances? Under what conditions can you do so? And this is what we are discussing now. What are the, the, we, we are discussing the different ways in which we can deal with this and whether this can protect the democracy understanding of that or whether it is better to in our hopes on the experiment in democracy that we see in the this is this is the problem that the people have chosen, I think, still the majority have chosen to stick with the old system. But the EU is an experiment in trying to do something different. That's why I said this is about co-decision. That's a, that is an attempt that is um, to deal with with the coexistence of people and to try to subject this to legal and also possibly democratic control. But, but of course, the democratic model for making this work also has not been fleshed out properly yet. So that in itself also is a risk and a gamble. But it's, uh, <coughs> I think this is where it stands. I'm not prescribing that Norway should become a member of this, but I'm simply saying that there are, are we are saying that there are, there are certain principles and understandings of democracy we, we try to apply, and then we look at, okay, what are the circumstances and, and the possible choices? So that's, he was, very briefly, I, I absolutely agree, and I'm certainly not suggesting we should not become members. My question was basically, if you were representing Liechtenstein, and we assume that membership is off the table, you will not become a member, what will then be the assessment of the democratic deficit of the EA agreement? Because it seems to me that the criticism is based on the fact that we could become members. 
So what if we can't become members? Or, or, or to put it otherwise, if the EU tells us you will never become members, getting Norway into the EU would just create a lot of problems. We are much better off with you at the moment as members with no voting rights. That's fine. So let's keep it like that. Would that mean that the, the assessment of the EA agreement becomes more positive because it's the best we can get? <laughs> I don't think it actually it changes in so far as it becomes more um, compelling and less of a choice and, and therefore actually uh, makes it more negative actually I would say because the, 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 it's no longer than a voluntary act of, of submission where you can withdraw but it's actually become more like a strength act and that's subjecting oneself to so-called functional necessities and a deep depolitization so I think this is even more problematic. Uh, yeah, but, but uh, I don't know. I don't understand the question. There are a lot of, of problems with some microstates, and of course, and of course, this has to do with with with, with size. So you cannot you cannot give you cannot give everybody the same the the voting rights if if there are too few people. So there are there are problems, of course. But as far as I know, both Norway and Iceland has been has been. Um, seen as kind of countries and has been recognized. So in that regard, Norway has a, a choice. They could have done, uh, done differently. So this is point, point one. There is, the Norway has been recognized as a member, as, as a candidate and could and have uh, negotiated an agreement and could be a member if they want to. And with regard to size, there is no problem. Norway is about the size of many other countries in, in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the EU. The, the other problem is uh, with regard to what we, that we do only this kind of normative analysis. My, my, my conception of the trap is, is exactly the opposite. That is a kind of, 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 of assessment of the political realities that there is uh, about how, how, how this situation is with regard to uh, the, the, the being member of the union and also with regard to what the EU could, could be able to, to, uh, to accept. So, so there are two empirical the period analysis and the, and the, and the line is so just for the record. Helena, I, I don't think. I, I would just add that I mean, the, the, the principled assessment would remain the same. That there would be the same sort of democratic challenges regardless of whether Norway could be a member or not. Uh, so, so that's the whole point of assessing the democratic implications. Well, I don't want to interrupt this fascinating debate, but I'm afraid we're about to be thrown out, so we must move to the reception. <laughs> One more? Mm -hmm. I don't have a microphone, but I can speak quite mm -hmm. loudly. Yep. <laughs> uh, just one comment on the Jan-Ole Gudmundsen from... Is it on? Yes. Jan-Ole Gudmundsen from the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, currently seconded to the European Parliament Secretary. So I'm not officially in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Just one comment to the, your question about the veto rights. I mean, the veto... I mean, the, the, the European Union takes majority decisions. In the Council is just when you want to change the treaties and in the, the governmental aspects. So I, I'm not sure whether the size argument is really that relevant because you have 
seen big member states block treaty reforms before, so it's uh, maybe not the biggest problem. One challenge would be that a country like Liechtenstein might have a very small administration compared to Norway, for instance, whereas if you see left in the EFTA, uh, the EFTA secretary is much more used by the Icelandic and perhaps also the Liechtenstein uh, government. Uh, governments, whereas Norway tends to go bilaterally through our big delegation here, our mission here. So that might be more relevant. But, uh, and then some of the key might not be interesting for Liechtenstein and the railway directive is probably not very interesting to, to Iceland and things like that. But uh, I'm not sure whether the more precise argument in terms of formally is the most uh, pressing one. Well, thank you very much. It's just a comment. So it just remains for me to thank the speakers very much for a fascinating afternoon. And uh, you're all invited to the reception afterwards.